Hi there, and welcome to another interview. Today, I've got the fantastic Craig Emmerich with me, and I'm going to ask Craig the same question I ask absolutely everybody. Hey, Craig, why did you become keto or carnivore? Well, thank you so much for having me on. And, uh, you know, my story, it's a bit of a longer one than most people, but uh, it started out with my wife, Maria. She she had, uh, you know, she's holding on to, you know, 40 or 50 pounds she couldn't get rid of. She had, well, this is back when we met. Uh, I don't know, 26 years ago, something like that. Um, and she had all kinds of health issues as well. She had PCOS. She had acid reflux, uh, you know, IBS, all these type of digestive issues. And she was doing everything she was told. She was, you know, eating healthy whole grains and eating low fat and running marathons. And yet none of this was helping. And so she knew there had to be a better way. She started researching on her own and then went just, college for nutrition and exercise science uh and got taught a lot of the same stuff <laughs> she's like okay there's got to be another answer here, uh and started researching on her own and started finding things in low carb keto that as she implemented on herself she got better she lost the extra weight even though she stopped running marathons because it was hard on her joints you know just improvements on, on top of improvements uh me took uh myself it took uh five, six years longer to come around. And mainly it was because back then I didn't have any health issues. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure I had, you know, I don't know, 20, 30, maybe at my peak, 35, 40 pounds of extra weight on me. Uh, but it wasn't a pressing need for me at the time. I had no health issues. Uh, I like, I'm got a straw, a German background. I brewed my own beer and, you know, I just didn't want to give up a lot of the things I had. Uh, and so, what happened was over time, she would just cook the food she made for herself and make it for me. And whenever I ate her food, like during the week, when I go to work and bring what she made, and I would just feel a lot better. <laughs> and on the weekends, I would eat whatever I wanted and I felt like crap. So I finally came around to, you know what, I'm just going to eat this way all the time. And that was, I don't know, 17, 18 years ago. And I started eating keto. Uh, after um, maybe 10 years, nine years of that, uh, I started to get this pain in my lower back. Um, and I thought it was from my uh, football injury from high school, but it was there all the time instead of like the slip disc I used to get. And it kept moving up my back and in my shoulders and in my neck over many years. I just got stepper, more uh, pain, less you know, mobility. So after a lot of work, uh, different tests, I finally got the right test for Lyme and found out I had Lyme disease. Um, Initially, I took the Western blot line test, which we can get into this maybe a lot more later. But uh, I now know 70 to 80% of the time that that's a false negative where they say you don't have Lyme, but you really do. Um, and that's what happened with me. So I went another couple of years trying to figure it out after I got that negative Lyme test and I really did have Lyme. Um, so that's the point, I don't know, six, seven years ago when I finally got properly diagnosed, when I started eating fully carnivore. And it was to help with my Lyme pain. And it did reduce my pain quite a bit. You know, my, my joint pain, my inflammation went down when I ate strict carnivore. And I've tried to stay there. Uh, for the most part, I've stayed, you know, in, the, in that range ever since. That's cool. Um, so for the people that don't know Lyme disease, how do you get Lyme disease? Yeah. So Lyme disease typically comes from a tick, a tick bite. Um, and they carry the the Lyme spiral key to it's a little, 
Uh, and when they bite you, it, it can get into your body. Al- along with other co-infections, there's lots of, you know, Babesia, Bartonella, uh, you know, uh, relapsing fever. There's all these things that ticks can give you. Uh, and if you don't treat them right away, most of the time, if you're, for most people, if you treat it early, so, you know, you, you see the tick bite, you take it out, uh, maybe a couple weeks later, you get tested, or you can actually test the tick, which is something, if you live in an area that has ticks, um, you can, you, and like Igenix, which is a, one of the good labs for testing for Lyme disease, you can send the tick in and they'll test the tick, which is a lot cheaper than testing your blood. So they'll test the tick for Lyme or some of these co-infections and see if the tick had it. And if the tick had it and it was embedded long enough, you can assume either you have it and get go get treated or you know, get, get your own blood test at that point if you want to. Um, and I actually had that happen again this fall. <laughs> uh, we live in the, a heavily wooded area um, where we have a lot of ticks. Uh, and back in Wisconsin, um, not in Hawaii, there's no ticks here, thankfully. Uh, but we, we spend about six, six, seven months in Wisconsin in the summers. And this fall, I found a tick under my arm, was embedded, had a, had a inflamed red spot, all of it. I sent the tick in, it had Lyme and it had relapsing fever. Um, and so I'm actually in the middle of treating that now again. <laughs> oh dear. Um, so you mentioned the, the Western blot, blot test, which is the second test. So you do the screening and then the Western blot yes. test. You said maybe we'll talk about that later, which has immediately got my interest. Is is there something you want to go into about that then? Because I'd like to hear. Yeah, so it's the, the standard test in the United States and I think pretty much everywhere is is this uh, two-step, two-stage test for Lyme. Where they first test, they test for certain bands and if it doesn't, if it comes up as positive, then they go to the Western blot and they look look more. But the problem is the first stage, uh, you know, again, a lot of 70 to 80% of those will come back negative. You don't have Lyme where they really do, or they have, you know, Babesia or Bartonella or some of these co-infections that they don't look for, which can be also very damaging, just like Lyme is. Um, and that's what happened to me is the first one came back negative. So they're like, you don't have Lyme. So let's look at other things. And that was, uh, there's tests like Igenex and Galaxy Labs, both do some really good Lyme tests where they test all the bands, all the co-infections. And then you can really see, okay, what do I have here versus that this sort of, it's, it's a, like I said, if you could talk to Lyme doctors, Lyme literate doctors, uh, at least 70, 80% of those negatives on that, the, the first stage of the Western, the, the typical Lyme test will come back negative when you really do have Lyme. Yeah. And it's, it's quite worrying because people will go away with a full sense of security. Uh, and again, I'm playing devil's advocate here. Do Lyme ticks, go for certain people or for, for instance you've been ticked um yeah. but uh, maria hasn't so i mean yeah. you're obviously in the same area is there is there a reason why a tick might go for you yeah so a couple of things that back to what you initially said about the test what's really bad about it too is that with with the false sense of okay you don't have lyme is that lyme disease in a lot of people if you catch it early and then the first you know month do a standard course of of antibiotics for six weeks or something, it's typically totally fine for people. And they, they're, you know, takes care of it and they're fine the rest of their life. But if you let it go 
and you don't treat the Lyme, it gets worse and worse and it becomes this sort of, uh, and this is what chronic Lyme disease is. It's, it's, it's this chronic inflammation, which can cause SIRS, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, which is what I have or had or maybe still have, uh, which can then cause autoimmune reactions, right? Because your body's constantly inflamed and fighting uh, constantly in this fight mode with your immune system, you can start attacking good cells. Well, what is that? That's an autoimmune reaction. And, and that's what I got. I got ankylosing spondylitis as a result, which was what was leading to a lot of the stiffness in my neck and shoulders and joints. And, and so, again, back to the test. I mean, the test is uh, so important in the beginning because if you treat it early, you don't get this cascade of events. But because the tests are so bad, you, you're getting all these people who uh, either go years without finally pro- getting properly diagnosed like I did or never get properly diagnosed with Lyme and they think it's, you know, it's it's uh, MS or it's, uh, you know, all these other conditions that may actually have been root caused by the Lyme infection. Yeah, and that that's hugely frustrating. Um we could have probably done an hour on this, couldn't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, one. Uh, yeah, I didn't answer your second, the other part of the question. Ticks in general, I mean, it's just chance. If you're out in the woods, if you hunt in an area, uh, like we bow hunt, my wife and I both bow hunt, and she's had ticks on her before, but uh, either she's caught them early or or you just do some things to prevent, like, uh, you know, put your socks over your pants so they have to crawl up on the outside of the clothing so you spot them easier, uh, those kind of things. Uh, this was just a chance. I went out to change a camera and I was out in the woods for, you know, a couple seconds, came back and I just must not have noticed it. And so, yeah, you just got to be careful. You got to always check and, and be more diligent about that. Right. Well, thanks. I mean, I really wanted to know about that because obviously I've seen you online yeah. and saw that you mentioned it. And I think people are interested in it. Strangely enough, as someone in the UK, it was only really five years ago that I was very aware of Lyme because I started to do online coaching and obviously a lot of Americans were talking about it. Not, you know, not a huge percentage, but enough for me to go, wow, this is, this really is a thing because we don't have it in the UK. And well, you know, what's interesting about that. Uh, you know, it's the climates and then, you know, where you are for sure. But, uh, five or six years ago, Maria and I did a keto presentation in Moscow. We were invited over by a doctor and, we were in this room and she was t- talking about me and I don't know, there's a couple hundred people in this room. She said, who here has or knows somebody who has Lyme disease? And like half the hands went up. So it's definitely a big problem, you know, uh, in many different areas, but it does depend, you know, on your climate in your area. Yeah. Um, well, uh, if it's okay, can we move on to a, a bit more? Yeah, about, totally. You know, diet and stuff like that. But I, yeah. I, I, I appreciate that, Craig. Thank you so much. Um, so obviously, you, you know, Maria and yourself doing this journey, uh, you started as keto. So, so what alerted you to thinking about keto? Because then, you know, 17, 18 years ago, I mean, I was a big high-carb advocate. I'd never heard of keto then. Um, so how did you come across it? Yeah, like I said, it started with my wife. You know, she just sl- sort of found this path where she – kept lowering carbohydrates and she kept feeling better and better. And, and she was eating ketogenic before it was, you know, we even knew the term, you know, 26 years ago, I think she started, you know, in low carb and then lower and lower to the point where she was keto. Um, 
and so yeah i really started with her and and we we just saw the results uh we you know at that i don't know four or five years after she started her on herself people kept asking and and um wanted to know what she's doing so she started helping other people and of course their results were amazing so the word of mouth just you know kept going and snowballed to the point where uh we were trying to adopt and uh i lost a, a job as 2007 i think it was um the big downturn the housing downturn um and she wanted to continue the adoption and so one a friend said why don't you put all these recipes you have together in a book make a little book we'll use it to help fund the adoption and so that's what she did and that was our first book and literally you know i don't know 30 books later <laughs> here we are uh years later but uh that's kind of how it all started amazing so um she was really a trendsetter because a lot of these interviews people say you know i saw sean baker on joe rogan or i saw this person it sounds like maria just found out for herself did her own research which is which is great really yeah i mean there was you know there's a couple people like bullock and finney were doing studies and and things and that's where a lot of the information she got initially on the studies and whatnot uh gary taub's early books you know and and really Atkins. I mean, if you go back to the original Atkins, the the original books, not the what it turned into in the United States with the processed, you know, packaged foods and stuff. He had a lot right. He got a lot right in those early books, and so you know, those are kind of the some of the big points that she saw and found for re- research and information. Oh, yes, definitely out there. I mean, Banting and yeah. loads of people, isn't there? But anyway, right. So um, at the moment, what do you call you? Are you carnivore now? And is yeah. Maria carnivore? Yeah. Yeah, I'm carnivore due to the, the pain. It still it still helps me manage my pain. If I get too much plants into my diet, I'll get inflamed. My, my joints will start to ache more and be painful. Like my, my pain just goes up. Um, so like five, six years now, I've stayed pretty, you know, and for, it's all about your threshold and, and your preference as well. Like, um, you know, in our carnivore cookbook, I don't know where my copy is here, but uh, we wrote that, I don't know, four or five years ago. And uh, we wrote, we put in there very specifically about what your why is, because that can really change how you, what methods you use and what your diet might actually look like. And if your why is like me with you know, fibromyalgia, chronic pain, uh, autoimmune disorders, you know, maybe brain conditions like bipolar. Uh, we developed what we call the carnivore autoimmune protocol, which is basically you start at beef and salt and you do that for, you know, maybe a month. And if you want to start reintroducing other foods, you slowly add back and we made levels. That's like level one. Level two is all animal proteins. So bringing in fish, seafood, you know, pork, poultry, uh, and then level three was bringing in eggs and dairy. And then level four is, you know, maybe what people would now maybe call like ketovore or, you know, or it's like spices or maybe a little bit of this or that. Um, and that's a really useful tool for people with autoimmune disorders or th- things like me, because I, you can find your threshold, what things are going to make your pain increase too much. Um, I, I was able to find that, you know, I can have a little bit of grilled onions. I can have, you know, Maybe a little bit of zero sugar ketchup with my uh, burger, you know, bunless burger if I'm doing that. Uh, you know, mushrooms are usually pretty fine for me. 
you know, there's a couple things I can include on occasion and not have any flare ups. Um, but that's what it's all about is, you know, figuring out what your tolerance level is and what your preferences are and if, uh, what you can handle and, and with your condition. So just for people out there listening, don't worry about all the, the, where do you get the book? Where do you, because all the links will be in the description. So everything that we're talking about will be in the description. You can just click it and you can find everything that the Emmerichs are doing. So, um, that's pretty, uh, well, I was going <laughs> to say that in, in the, that book, it's a really good introduction to carnivore too, because over half of it's called the cookbook, but over half of that book is science and information and background and protocols like this. So. Yeah, well, it's nice to get into the science. I've got an honours degree in um, physiology and health sciences, and I loved meeting you the other day on Robert Kiltz's show. It's a big shout yeah. out to Robert. Um, I could talk science all day, but I'm going to get on a little bit more basic and talk about food and the common questions. Um, if I'm not mistaken, you're quite interested in talking about protein-sparing modified fasting. I think that's a thing that you yeah. talk about. Yeah, so... um. You know, it's something that we've, again, going back a long time. I mean, this is, I don't know, 12 plus years ago, Maria would use this method if if a client was stalled or their weight loss wasn't quite doing what they wanted. Um, she would tell them to add a pure protein day. And that's what we called them back then. Uh, the t- clinical term, which we found out later on, is a protein sparing modified fast. The ter- clinical term comes from uh, you modify a fast, like a water fast, where you eat nothing. You just drink water for two, three days, whatever. Um, you modify that because the researchers found and, and understood that you lose lean mass. You lose muscle if you fast for multiple days. So they modify the fast to preserve or spare your protein, your body's protein. So all you're doing is you're mimicking a fast in that the energy coming in, carbohydrates are almost nothing. Fat is very low, 20 to 30 grams, just enough to absorb fat-soluble vitamins, not just enough to make you know healthy hormones, sex hormones, and whatnot. Um, and then you get enough protein to preserve your muscle instead of lose it. So it's really just a tool that you use in place of a water fast. And so we, uh, we just see it as a better option. You pres- preserve muscle, you get amino acids, you... Uh, could even build muscle while doing this instead of lose it. You get all the vitamins and minerals that come with meat, which is tons, right? So you, you just, and they're much easier to do. We we get people all the time that, you know, these days are maybe 700 calories because it's basically just, you know, all protein and just a little bit of fat. Um, and they're saying, you know, we can't eat all the food. It's very satiating. So, um, you know, it's a great tool, but it's also just a tool. It's not a lifestyle. You don't eat this way all the time. Marie and I haven't done protein sparing days in decades because we're in maintenance. Uh, we don't eat this way. <laughs> People out there think that we eat zero fat or something. I eat tons of fat. Um, but I'm in maintenance. So my goals are different. And if your goal is weight loss and you're stalled, adding a protein sparing day can really be helpful. Welcome to the Alchemy of Natural Healing. I'm your host, Laurel Dewey. True healing is an alchemical process, meaning it must transform you on all levels, body, mind, and spirit. What affects one affects all three. True healing is one of the hardest journeys you'll ever travel, but it's one of the most rewarding and fulfilling when you get to meet yourself 
for the first time. If you're ready to take that journey, let's get started. Yeah, no, I, I've I faced a backlash because I did a very level-headed video myself on the channel about protein sparing modified fasting, and I did the pros and cons. And half the comments said, you're promoting this, are you? You think this is a great way. And the other half said, "You so you don't like it. So I think people yeah. just hear what they want to hear. One of the things you mentioned there was about fat, and I'd like to nail this with you because there are people out there that say all the fat, Nearly all the fats go into structures in the body or it's, it's cofactors. Yeah. And yes, some fat does do that. Yeah. So, um, I don't think it's as much as people believe. I think maybe 20 grams is, is possibly yeah. enough. I, I don't know the exact numbers. Um, certainly not off the top of my head. So when people start this, they always ask, how much protein and how much fat should I consume? And what, do you, what would you say to them? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, especially the point you make about, you know, what fat does in the body, right? And yeah, there are essential fatty acids. There are fats that your body can't produce. Guess what? Saturated fat's not one of them. The body can make all the saturated fat it needs. And, and if you've got excess body fat on your body, it's got big tanks full of saturated fat, you know, it's that it can tap into and use for whatever processes it needs if it's not coming in the diet. So, and, and it really doesn't, from a biochemistry standpoint, once the fat from the diet is digested and put into the bloodstream, the body does not care about that fat versus the fat stored on the body. It, it can use it or identify it or do what it wants with it exactly the same. So, um, the essential fatty acids are different. Your body cannot make, you know, omega-6s, omega-3s. Um, so, they're still essential, meaning you need some, Right. And those are the ones that you need a certain amount in the diet. And yeah, it's probably less than 20 grams a day of essential fatty acids to make, you know, cellular walls, cell walls like your EPA, DHA, those type of fats. You need them in the diet and you need them to produce cell walls and structures and these kind of things. But yeah, it's, if you look at where deficiency happens, which is a good indicator of, you know, not necessarily optimal or ideal, but minimum thresholds. It's like two to five grams a day. Uh, that's all you need. And so that's the you know minimum input. I'm not saying anybody should eat that. And I'm not saying anybody should sit at that fat level for any period of time. Just like our, even our protein sparing days are you know 20 to 30 grams of fat. And even then we say do maybe one to three days a week. And if you're doing three days a week, add an overfeeding day where you eat at maintenance. It's not you know, eating a bunch of carbs or anything. It's just, you know, upping your fat to like a maintenance level just to keep the metabolism honest and not eat, you know, too low calorie, you know, over day after day. But the point, back to the point, um, is that, you know, there's m the vast majority of the fat you eat is going to be put into your fat storage. That's where it goes. That's just biochemistry. Uh, let's, let's back up and talk about the process, right? You eat fat. It gets into your gut. It has two places it can go, right? It can go absorbed into your bloodstream or it can go right through you, okay? Right through you, there's been studies on this. One of the studies that I really like, it, it, it uh, varied, kept, kept protein and carbs exactly the same, just varied the fat amount. And it varied the fat from like 60 grams a day to 150 grams a day. And the total, and, and then they sampled, brought all the fecal matter and they sampled it and they measured how much fat was in the, the fecal output. 
And it stayed pretty much constant right around three grams a day. Okay, so three grams of fat, even though it went from 60 to 160 or something like that. And I can supply the study links. I'm not saying the exact numbers, but it's it's pretty close to that. Um, their fecal output stayed basically around three grams. Like, it's not going out there. And if it does go out there, you will know it. Remember the Olestra, the wow chips? I don't know if that was a, it was a thing in America. Olestra was this synthetic fat they came up with that didn't get digested. It went right through you. Well, they, they ended up getting pulled off the shelves, but they basically had to put a label on it that said you could have uncontrolled bowels, anal leakage because of this extra, you know, five or 10 grams of fat going straight through to your stool. That's what happens if you have a lot of fat going out. So you would know it. You'd, you'd be on the toilet all day long. Um, but so most of it's not going out there. There's a little bit, but not a lot. Where's the rest go then? In your bloodstream. So again, once that, you know, fat is in the bloodstream, it, it is really only one place for it to go in, in the storage or, or be burned as fuel. And if it's burned as fuel, it's, you're not burning your own fat as fuel, right? I mean, it's, it's all one pool of available energy at that point. And, um, if it doesn't go in those places, you really want it to go in your fat cells because if it stays in the blood, guy high triglycerides, nobody wants that. If it goes in the, you know, around the organs or in the organs, nobody wants that. So you want it in the fat cells. And so that's where it ends up going, the majority of the fat that you eat. That's a great answer, actually. And yes, I do want that study. And I'll put that in the description because I think these sort of things I've learned on YouTube, especially in the last year, that the people just love the studies as well. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so back to the question, maybe a little bit more basic then, is is how much protein and how much fat do people need? So let's take somebody who is 140 pounds in weight. Yeah. Do you have any, Definitely. any guidance? Yeah. So uh, the way we look at that is, you know, more on carbs to a minimum. I mean, eating carnivore, that's not going to be a problem. You're going to have minimal carbs. Um Protein is a goal based on how, your, how much lean mass you have. If, the, if you have a five-foot-tall woman, she's going to need a lot, the amount of amino acids she needs in the diet to replenish and turn over proteins and, and do the, uh, all that is a lot less than a six-foot-tall man that's a bodybuilder, right? So the protein requirement varies based on lean mass. Uh, we, we typically say somewhere around 0.9 or 1 times your lean mass for your protein. So easy math, 150 pound person with a 33% body fat, that's hundred pounds of lean mass. So you'd, bought, you'd want at least hundred grams of protein for the day. So that's, it's pretty, uh, another good rule of thumb is to use height. Like if you're a five foot tall woman, you want to start at like 80 to 90 grams of protein and then add five grams of protein per inch above that. So somebody, a woman that's five foot four, Four times five is 20, so you'd be up around 100, 110 grams of protein for that person. Um, so that's protein. Fat then becomes the only variable left, right? And this is something that I think in this community especially gets sort of, you know, everybody, like for example, Dr. Shafi, love Dr. Shafi, great guy. Um, but if I ate like him, I'd gain weight like crazy because he's way bigger than me. He's more active than me because of my pain and everything. Um, and so I don't, you shouldn't eat like him because you're not in maintenance. You're not, you know, as muscular as him, et cetera. You got to eat for your body and your goals. And if your goal is weight loss, now you, for, you dial the fat down a little bit. And so that's where the fat dial becomes important in that 
um, if you, you, based on your goals, you adjust the fat. So the fat goes down if you're trying to lose more body fat. Again, it all becomes part of the pool. So if you dial the fat down a little bit in the diet, the body will burn more of its own fat uh, for fuel. If you ramp it back up, now you can maintain and get into maintenance. And so that's the only variable left, right? So um, that's the way we look at it. That's brilliant. So I'm trying to keep this very layman's because that's what my channel is. But I think what it is, yeah. people like the site, they like the layman's answer. But they also like the science, I think. So I think I've hit a nice vein of, uh, you know, really loyal subscribers. This question comes up ever such a lot. And um, it's sort of like three parts. Because when people start this way of eating, they're very worried about eating not enough, too much, a muffin top, or those sort of things. So just three very quick questions. What is a sign that you are eating too much? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting one. Uh, you know, and it, I don't want to go too off, but, uh, you know, leptin resistance is a very real thing. People will, and, and guess what? The more stored body fat you have, the more leptin signaling issues you have. So this is where, again, in the carnivore community where people tell them, just eat all the fattiest cuts until you're comfortably full. You don't get the satiety signals, right? You're going to overeat, right? And so that's part of this problem of not customizing it to their goals and dialing the fat down to make them lose some of the body fat and regain their leptin signaling so that they do get the I'm full signal better, right? Um, you know, so that's part of a problem here in this space as well. Um, overeating, I mean, the scale is a good body composition, how your belt fits, right? If you're, you got to move a notch down on your belt, maybe uh, cut back on the fat a little bit in the diet, Especially if you're starting to in include other things like a muffin here or this, you know, a uh, uh, cupcake there, that creep, you know, and that's another thing where you get to the emotional side of eating that, you know, if we, over the 20 plus years of doing this, you would not believe how many people that would lose 80 pounds or 100 pounds. And then all of a sudden we stop hearing from them. And a year later, they come back and say, I was going to have that one cupcake. And it led to a year off the wagon and I've gained all the weight back. That is a very real thing. And that also has to be, you know, part of this equation of, you know, what can I add this in? Some people can't. Some people can't have just the one muffin. And you got to realize that if that's you and just keep this as a lifestyle like Maria and I have for, you know, 20 years. <laughs> now, what do you think causes that addiction for people to go off the rails? It is a very, you know, their connection with food, what, you know, it could be so many factors like, I mean, you know, the history of emotional eating or, you know, different, so many different factors that put people in that situation of going to food or, or looking, uh, and to be frank, I think sugar by itself is just very addicting and it lights up a lot of the areas of the brain as some certain illicit drugs. And it gives you that dopamine hit and response and you want to go get more. And that's, you know, a vicious cycle that, you know, and, and the other part of it that makes it happen is because when you get the hit of sugar, you get this spike in blood glucose. And then as it's dra dropping rapidly, because the body doesn't want that, you get hunger. Even though you just had a thousand calorie flurry, you know, two hours later, you're hungry again. It's because your blood sugar is dropping drastically and that drives more hunger and that hormone connection. So, yeah, it's, it's a big snowball for sure. Yeah. I, th I think 
One of the things uh, I was alluding to earlier is, you know, Robert Kiltz has got a lot of people, you know, real people that just talk to you and, and definitely you and Maria. Uh, I'm quite proud of the fact that you know, I went over a thousand clients since I've been doing this in, in the space of 10 years. Um, thank you. Um, but it's, it's interesting that the same questions come up time and time again. So I'm going to ask you a golden question, which I'm sure you've had, uh, and it's male or female. Tends to be mostly female, but does tend to be men as well. I've lost a ton of weight on my arms and my chest, my upper body. My legs look great, but round the center, there's a lot of fat. What can I do? Yeah, so you know, the thing about the body is it it and and I'm one of those. Like the first place I put on weight is right in my stomach. Like it's just my genetics. Uh, I knew guys growing up, growing up that. You know, their genetics, they could do whatever they wanted, eat whatever they wanted. They always had a six pack. I I got to the point in high school where I was I was into weightlifting and bodybuilding and I I could bench press twice twice my weight. I could squat three times my weight. And I never still had a six pack. You know, I just just my genetics, right? Like I that's the first place my body likes to store fat is on my stomach. Um and then as far as losing it, the body is the, the from what I understand in the research and whatnot is the body's going to pull the fat out of the areas that really doesn't want it first. So if you're, you've got metabolic syndrome, you've got fatty liver and you've got, you know, fat in your pancreas and it's causing, you know, insulin resistance. As you start to lose weight, um, it's going to start to pulling the fat from the liver, the pancreas, the areas that really doesn't want it first. And it'll get it out of there and improve, improve function and all that. But you can't, other than that, you can't locally pull fat. Like you, you can't do more crunches to make your, your stomach fat go down, right? To make your stomach muscles stronger, but you won't, you can't isolate, you know, fat like that and pull it from a certain area. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's tough for people to hear that because they're looking so good everywhere else. And it is the long haul. And like you say, I mean, I actually feel that I fit into that category. I was very sporty, semi-professional soccer player, won a tennis tournament, even did a bodybuilding show where I did manage to, to get it off. But that was really strict. You know, everything was pinpointed. It wasn't particularly a good life living that, you know, up towards the bodybuilding show. It was just too restrictive for me. So I have to either accept that I'm a little bit, not as flat as I'd like, or I've got to go really strict. And I think some people just don't want to hear that. But yeah, for some people, it is really tough. Um, I wouldn't mind just talking about a couple of health concerns that always seem to rear their head for one thing when it comes to protein, especially. And that's people that have read or are worried that protein is going to ruin their kidney function. Yeah. So uh, I, a couple of things on that. Number one, we uh, on our website, if you go to the success stories. There's a whole section I, on health. So we got weight loss successes and then we got health successes. And over the years of doing this, uh, I remember, I don't know, 15 years ago, we kept getting these testimonies from people like, oh, the, Marie, I'm so happy this happened and this improved and I got off of this medication. And fi finally, I was like, you know what? We should save these. And I started creating a folder of these. And I don't know, we got three to 4,000 of these in there now. And I can literally go in there and Google or search you know, condition like PCOS and here's 10 or here, this condition, here's, you know, five. And um, so, you know, there's definitely a ton of things that this lifestyle can improve. And one of them is kidney function. Uh, we've got a bunch of 
uh, examples of people reversing kidney disease with this lifestyle. I think it's primarily the carbohydrates that are the problem when you cut them out uh, and it improves and when you prioritize protein. So prioritizing protein, which we have always done, whether it was keto, carnivore, you know, protein sparing, you know, whatever method, we always make sure to prioritize and get enough protein. Um, and we, we have an uh, interview, which maybe we can cross-link, if you don't mind, with, with Dr. Lehman. Dr. Donald Lehman is one of the experts in the world on protein. He's got over 100 studies and papers written. Um, and I did an interview with him a, a month or so ago. We talked about kidneys. And one of the things he said always happens if you start getting enough protein, your kidneys get bigger and stronger. It's kind of like a muscle, right? If you use that muscle, it's going to get bigger and stronger. And the same thing with eating enough protein, your kidneys get bigger and stronger, making them able to filter more. And, and the studies even show this, that up to like total kidney failure, okay, total kidney failure, you've got problems and you're going to have to limit protein and, and whatever. Below that, pretty much every other level below that, Added, adding enough protein or even increasing protein will make the kidneys bigger and stronger and filter more, improving function. So it's really, the, the, and they, you can go even go back and look, analyze all the old studies saying protein is bad for the kidneys. And it was always in somebody with complete failure. Yeah. And, and you know, when your kidneys are failing, yeah, you want to limit protein. But outside of that, protein is really what you want. Yeah, and I definitely will link to Dr. Lehman. Um, it's been a big issue for me lately because a couple of people have come to me and once somebody has actually got off dialysis and is following the carnivore lifestyle and, you know, we did a video about it. Uh, I've got plenty of articles about the protective nature of protein. Um, but today I was asked by somebody, some kind person on YouTube, you know, what are your credentials? And I said, well... Yeah. He's got, he's, he's got nothing to sell. That's the first thing. And I never do videos like this without seeing all the medical records. You know, I, I need to know it's bona fide. But we're not trying to sell you anything. That's his story. You know, he was on dialysis. He's got all the proof. And, and he's fitter and healthier now. So, so that's correct. two things on that. Number one, if somebody goes to what are your credentials and not trying to critique the data and the information, that's always, a you know, you failed. You know, because... You're no longer questioning, is this real? You're questioning the person delivering the message, right? Which is, you know, losing position. Uh, but the other thing is, um, you know, these N equals one, they're super important, right? Like you go to any doctor and doctor with every patient is an N equals one. He wants that patient to have better outcomes, which means they leave them in better shape than they come, right? And if you're supplying this data and information, those are outcomes. Those are better outcomes. And so they, they in themselves are proof of, you know, what you're trying to do. Absolutely. Now you're going to roll your eyes, I think, about the next one. What about all this protein and getting gout? <laughs> yeah, that's another one. Of, you know, it's, it's interesting how these things happen. They get, you know, some studies that are looking for a link and then they, of course, find one because they're looking for it. And then it, it becomes sort of common knowledge that, you know, protein destroys your kidneys and protein causes gout and, you know, these kind of things. When you really dig it, dig into it and look at the studies and the methods, or you look at, uh, you know, who's behind the studies and the message and the information, like you, it, in our, our keto book, when we wrote it, I started out by talking about the whole story of how the sugar industry uh, funded all these studies to point the, sh the blame at saturated fat for heart disease 
because they knew it was sugar and they wanted to deflect the blame off of them so they could keep selling their sugar. Literally, like all these studies, and, and there's even more since we wrote the book, have come out of correspondences with researchers in the sugar industry, just showing how they were making this message up. And even today, those get some people out of the same thing still say that, right? That saturated fat causes heart disease. And so it's it, the message it just gets becomes fact almost. Um, you know, so yeah, it's it's frustrating. Uh, you know, one thing too I ever learned recently, even uh, things like uh, oxalates uh, can you know oxalate numbing can cause gout flare ups, uh, different things like that. Which you know people are if you're not looking for that answer, you're not going to find that answer. So, big I I think there may be some big money behind. Uh, the the recent trend of mocking people who say I've done my research. Now, when I was growing up, that meant you did some reading. So people yeah. are mocking the fact that you've done some reading, and <laughs> you should trust these other people. That's like saying um, I'm going to go and buy a car, and I'll just trust the car salesman. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because he's going to exactly. tell me the whole truth, isn't he? But yeah. um, anyway, I, I don't want to get into being too sarcastic about it. <laughs> I suppose. We can't stop this. I've got a couple of um, burning questions, if you don't mind. I have three to go. Is that all right, Craig, on your time? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Because there is uh, quite a fad for taking iodine. I just wondered if you had any thoughts uh, about supplementing with iodine. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I know the thyroid is an iodine hog. And so if, if you've got some thyroid issues, it might make sense to do that. Uh, we kind of look at it as more of a symptoms-based approach for a lot of things. Uh, especially when it comes to supplements. If you've got XYZ symptom, uh, you know, these supplements might help you and maybe they're a bridge to top up, you know, a deficiency that you had and then you can maybe wean off them or, or take them out down the road. Uh, if you're eating a nutrient-dense uh, diet, like, you know, lots of animal proteins, um, those kind of things. Uh, you know, when it comes to iodine in general, I mean, I've never supplemented it, uh, you know, I've never had any thyroid issues either. So, you know, that, you know, I go by symptoms. If I start to have issues, then I'll look at, you know, maybe some supplements that can, that can deal with those issues. Yeah. And I think uh, one thing I meant to say earlier, by the way, you heard right about omega sixes being essential. Um, in case that gets picked up in the comments, I heard it. And yes, so they are essential. It's always about the ratio and the inappropriate exactly. level. Um, right. Two questions. Last one. Uh, that is very vague and big and broad. What are your thoughts on dairy? Ah, yeah, so uh, coming from Wisconsin, <laughs> I'm a fan of dairy, uh, big dairy state. Uh, but, you know, it depends on, again, it depends on the person and the goals and all that. If, if uh, back to the autoimmune protocol we talked about, the carnivore autoimmune protocol, dairy was the last thing to reintroduce because it is something that so many people are sensitive to. People don't want to admit it because they love it, but, you know, it's more of a sensitivity than even gluten, you know, as far as numbers. Uh, and so, you know, that would be something if you've got inflammation, chronic pain, uh, eczema, different skin conditions, definitely cut out the dairy and see if that's one of the triggers. Um, it's also something that uh, will really uh, limit the weight loss in a lot of people. Uh, one of the first things we ask people or tell people to do if they're not losing weight is cut out all the dairy, cut out the butter, the cream, the cheese. And and part of that is just that dairy is one of those foods that's just not as satiating as others. 
And in that, you know, I can sit down with a stack of slices of cheese and just keep eating them. And it just doesn't trigger or, uh, you know, keto ice cream, you know, where you got a sweetener. It's basically just a bunch of heavy cream. I can take that whole thing out, you know, and I don't know how many calories it is, but you stick a steak in front of me, that's the same calories. There's no way I'm finishing that much without being stuffed, right? Just different satiety triggering there. Uh, and so we say cut dairy if you're trying to lose weight. Yeah, and I think that's that's good that you mentioned butter because a lot of people forget that's dairy. They think it's just pure yeah. fat, but it's but it is dairy. Okay, yeah. um, you've done brilliantly. A very specific question, but it is something that, especially as I'm a phlebotomist, I get this a lot. But I've, I've had this for a long time. Uh, what are your views on people with high ferritin levels on uh, keto or carnivore? Yeah, I've seen it on occasion. Um, and it can actually be the other way. I, I think it's related to my Babesia, which can damage red blood cells and stuff. I actually have low, even though I eat tons of red meats and all this stuff, I actually have the other end of it. But, uh, you know, for ferritin, I, I have seen some data um, on the relationship of ferritin with copper. Um, and so it, the two of them together, uh, they, they kind of work in harmony. And so... If your copper levels are off, it's going to make your uh, ferritin levels off. So something to consider is to look into your copper levels if you have high ferritin and see if those are out of whack and try to try to deal with that. Because, uh, uh, you know, in reality, uh, there's not a whole lot you can do about high ferritin or iron it, except for give blood, right? So, um, you know, I would look at copper levels and see if those are out of whack. Yeah. And I'll just add that, High levels of copper can be found in organ meats, uh, especially liver. Yeah. So um, yeah. it might it might be doing that sort of uh, way of eating. Well, okay, uh, a nice easy one to end on because I want to thank you. It's been brilliant. Um, it's it's nice that I've met you and uh, you're really into the science. I mean, you are a scientist basically. So um, I, I don't give a big build up at the beginning because I just want people to be people, and you can make your own decision. Uh, because there are people with PhDs out there that don't talk much sense, in my opinion. So I don't, you know, I just want the uh, the truth to come out. So if someone was thinking about this, sitting on the fence, we, we've addressed quite a few of the issues why people don't do carnivore, don't do keto. We've addressed those. Um, and they're still sitting on the fence, I'm not sure. But I've got this weight to lose. I've got an autoimmune condition. What would you say to sort of, Give them a little nudge to maybe try it. Yeah, it, it, there's, you know, what are you waiting for? <laughs> I mean, again, you know, there's, you can message me privately or, you know, through our website and I will send send me your condition. I'll give you a half a dozen testimonies of, and you can see firsthand what this lifestyle can do for those situations. And, I, you know, I, I do want to temper it slightly. I don't want to say this, you know, I don't want this. Yes, this lifestyle can do incredible things for a wide range of conditions and situations it's not a magic pill you know and and so you know i want to temper it slightly in that like i don't my ankylosing spondylitis didn't go away i still have it i still have calcification in my neck limit mobility uh because of that and i'm not going to reverse that but guess what i can really manage the pain i can really function better when i'm eating this way um and so i don't know of any condition or situation where eating this way would not, at a minimum, be a net neutral, <laughs> right? Like worst case, 
you're just going to feel better, but maybe your symptoms didn't improve, right? And so feeling better, losing some weight, hey, that's, that's a good uh, side benefit to feeling great. Greg, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Your support means the absolute world to me. And if you're enjoying the show, I've got a small favour to ask you. I'd be incredibly grateful if you would consider becoming a supporter and make a small monthly donation. Your contribution will really help to improve the show. I'll be able to improve the software, maybe put a few more episodes out and do many things that I'm hoping to do in the future. Do them a lot quicker. So it's a small monthly contribution. You can cancel at any time and the link is in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening.